This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello, Keevan Carlson listeners. It's Brian Com here with, yes, believe it or not, another bonus episode. I don't know if this is going to happen every week. In fact, I do know it won't. But two in a row to get things going isn't too shabby. I hope you'll enjoy it. I've actually got a really neat interview coming up with Hockey Prospectus writer Ryan Wagman. And if you're not familiar with Hockey Prospectus, let me give you a quick introduction. And this is all because they have released their guide for the 2014-2015 season. Full disclosure... We did receive a free copy of this year's guide when I offered to review it, uh, but that doesn't change my opinion at all of what it was. It might sound like I'm about to get gushy, uh, but every bit I say is sincere. So let me tell you about them first. They launched in 2009, and one of the reasons they're on the show today is because their writing on hockey analytics was one of my first entry points into the world of advanced statistics. And back then, reading their stuff was amazing. I felt like I'd stumbled on this secret world where people actually asked and tried to explain why certain things were happening on the ice. Coaching decisions were thrown into question with evidence to back it up. GM signings were challenged with justification as well. And on-ice events were analyzed far beyond simply counting who was physically present on the ice at the time a goal was scored. And this was so far from the status quo at the time where, you know, talking in illogical circles and repeating tired, cliched arguments was mostly the best analysis you could get unless you stumbled across Hockey Prospectus. And it's long been an incredibly trusted resource of mine in both watching the games and strategizing in fantasy hockey. I've used it in my fantasy drafts several times before, and every year their team of authors, some of whom have actually recently been hired by NHL teams, they put out an impossibly comprehensive guide called Hockey Prospectus. The guide contains stats and projections for every single player that played in the NHL last season. So on the stat side, you've got your basic goals, assists, points, and plus minus, plus a simply laid out even strength points per 60 minutes and advanced possession and goal sharing metrics. These are all sounding a little complicated, but they are laid out in a really easy to read table for every player's last three seasons played. And it also offers their projections for the season to come. And I know in particular, projections is what is of interest to fantasy poolies. They also have player usage charts for every single team. You've heard me reference those on the show frequently. They show you how a player was deployed over a year. So in one look, you can see what kind of minutes they're getting. You can see their percentage of zone starts, the quality of their on-ice opposition, as well as their possession numbers. The cherry on top of the stats Sunday is their trademark homemade statistics GVT and Vakoda. Between them, they'll explain a player's value in two ways. GVT is going to tell you how many more goals 
they bring to their team than an AHL player would, given the same minutes and same deployment, while Vakoda is a straight-up projection of how many goals, assists, and points a player will score in the coming year, especially relevant in fantasy hockey. It's also worth noting that all this stuff, it might sound complicated coming out of my mouth, and it was to me at one point, but it's explained so clearly at the start of the guide that even the newest observer of advanced stats can start catching on quickly. It could be your entry point if you're thinking about learning just a little more. You don't want to get overwhelmed. This could be a good way to get started in figuring out a little bit more about some of the metrics we use on the show and just the metrics that are being discussed in general in the hockey analytics world. But let me be clear, it's not just a book full of numbers with a lot of decimal points and percentage signs. It's a book that has numbers, but these numbers are relied upon to color helpful and thorough written analysis inside. Every player in every team has a detailed blurb about them, but they're not overloaded with jargon or rhetoric. Instead, every explanation and expectation is grounded in fact, and that's what attracted me to Hockey Prospectus way back when, and why I still deeply trust what its writers have to say today. So, I'm lucky enough to get to speak to one of those writers, and I don't just want to keep talking about the book, I think it'd be fun to have one of them on to find out a bit more about Hockey Prospectus itself, and to chat about this year's guide and how the insight inside the guide and their website, HockeyPerspectives.com, can help you strategize for your fantasy pool, both while preparing for your draft and throughout the season. So without further ado, let's get to it. So I'm now joined from Toronto by a longtime Hockey Prospectus writer, Ryan Wagman. Ryan, thanks a lot for coming on the show and doing this with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, so the forward of this year's guide was all about the summer of analytics, which honestly it makes me cringe to hear and even say now because it's already seemed so tired, but it did happen. And several NHL teams finally made moves to hire their dedicated statistical analysis, either full-time as consultants, and several hockey prospectus writers were actually among those hires. And the point in the forward of the guide that I love the most is where Timo wrote that Stats budgets don't count towards the cap. And of course, that makes so much sense, right? What a great way to articulate that there's so much thinking done off the ice that leads to goals being scored on the ice, and there's zero cap or limit to how much of an off-ice advantage that you can buy for yourself. My question for you is, how will teams' investments in stats kind of manifest themselves in terms of what we actually see in the on-ice product? That's a good question, and I think the first thing I want to say in answering that is that we don't really know that the people who are hired, at least in all cases, are actually going to do to come up with good decisions. You know, it's like if you if you think about yourself, I mean, um, you know, you're, you're fantasy focused and, and you can prepare for the draft as well as you possibly can and yet still get dealt a really bad hand. Um, you know, you might you're, you're likely have Crosby or Stamkos at the top two of your um, of your rankings. But if you don't pick in the top two, you're not going to get them. In the same way with, with analytics, you know, you might your stats guys might tell you that something pretty obvious, like uh, you know, Patrice Bergeron is a great two-way center, and you want him on your team to be a more play a better possession game. But Patrice Bergeron is not available to you. So the fact that a lot of teams are getting more into analytics does not necessarily mean that they're all going to be making great decisions because the player pool is still finite. But what it does mean is that perhaps. Most likely, some of the more egregiously bad decisions will stop being made. 
Um, and the ones that pop out to me, you know, right off the top of my head would be fewer useless fourth lines. There is, you know, more and more of the successful teams in the NHL now are, are rolling with four lines who can score. You know, they're not all, of course, at the, uh, you know, top tier level, but we're not, we're not having guys who are z- absolute zeros anymore. At least they're being weeded out slowly but surely. One of the bigger implications I thought might trickle down, or at least start to trickle down, it's it's way too early to tell, would be the way that coaches use their players. And you mentioned that fourth lines are going to score, but I'm kind of thinking the other way in terms of coaches making sure that all their players are being used in an optimal way. And that suggests maybe seeing offensive players being totally dedicated to getting those offensive zone starts and that might actually prevent say a second or third line from seeing as much opportunity as they might have had before are we going to see a really large emphasis and sort of exaggeration of top three scoring or is it really going to even out along all four lines I think we will see more of an evening out. Now, you do have a good point in that, you know, there will be some coaches who t- do the, you know, the Elaine Vigneault extreme uh, zone start um, uh, splits between, you know, his top lines getting start- extremely heavy uh, uh, ratio of their starts in the offensive end and their bottom line getting the exact opposite. But for the most part, the um, the analytics have not yet really filtered down to the uh, the on-ice coaching staff. There are some coaches who do get it, and I would say Elaine Mignot is definitely up there. I, I, I understand there's very good things about um, uh, Ken Hitchcock in terms of his understanding, and I'm sure there's a few others besides. But a lot, there's a lot more resistance or a lot more challenge to communicate these findings to you know to the on-ice coaching staff. So I think that might be a bit further down the road. Uh, but you do have a good point in that teams who do have you know what we'd consider like a classic shutdown line and and a good classic scoring line might split them up very uh, to an extreme. Uh, but in other teams, it, that won't even be an option because they don't have a classic shutdown line or that their classic shutdown, their their best defensive forwards are also very good offensive forwards and won't do that. You know, not every team has a uh, like a Manny Malhotra or a um, you know a Dominic Moore that they can just bury in the defensive end and, and assume will, will come out unscathed. Let's talk about the two stats that are kind of like trademark hockey prospectus. There's two, there's GVT and Vakoda. They're both explained and listed for every single player who played in the NHL last season in this year's hockey prospectus guide. Let's start with GVT. Can you give us a quick rundown of what it is? The acronym stands for goals versus threshold. But for those who still don't really grasp what those three words mean together, in a nutshell, what is it? It's a type of stat that was popularized in baseball many years ago, like a wins above replacement, where you kind of bundle in everything a given player does and, and try to see how that would add up into getting his team more wins than you could expect from a typical AHL call-up. We kind of filter down right to goals because ultimately wins are a product of scoring more goals than the other team. GVT looks at four different areas, namely offensive contributions, defensive contributions, goaltending contributions, and shootout contributions, which generally doesn't have to move the needle very much, but we factor it in anyway. Each of those four look at a number of different smaller uh, metrics. A lot of them are very basic stats like time on ice, power play time, shorthanded time, shots, goals, assists, save percentage for goalies, and really see, okay, how much did this person do more than what we could expect an AHL call to do given those same circumstances. The player's time on ice is very important. And so we factor that in. And being a guy, if his, say, offense is very heavily weighted to uh, power play time. And similarly, we give a, a player defensive credit if they get more penalty killing time because those are harder minutes to play. 
Right, so it's it's a relative ranking. If some average Joe was about to just step into that player's role, given all the either difficulties or advantages that player has, it's measuring exactly how irreplaceable or replaceable that player might be. It's just basically a way of saying, is this guy, will, will your team miss him if he's gone? What is his real value to your team? I like that. I like that a lot. And the other one I want to touch on is Vakoda, all caps, V-U-K-O-T-A. What's that? Um, it's basically our projection system named after an old crummy hockey player, Mick Vakoda, an enforcer for the Islanders back in the 80s. It's a system that's very good at, at basically saying over the course of the coming up year, after we've looked at you know what this player's done in the past and what comparable players have done in the, in the past, what can we expect a given player to do this year? Goals, assists, points, save percentages especially. I usually use it myself when I'm preparing for a fantasy draft. Yeah, that sounds incredibly helpful, and I've used it in the past for my own fantasy draft. So what exactly is Vukoda's, say, unfair advantage when it's stacked up against other projection systems? Well, Vukoda is not based on a hunch. There is no no subjective factor that goes into Vukoda. There's no chance of bias slipping in, you know, that uh, the guy who came up with a, or woman who came up with a projection system, we don't really know, you know, if they're going to give some subconscious boost to their favorite team's players or somebody that was once gave them a good interview or something like that, or they saw a great goal, this guy scored once. There's, there's not going to be anything like that in, in the Vakoda system. Uh, it's based on historical measurements. Uh, I think and it goes back, if I, if I have the, the, the date right, to 1967, which is when the NHL first started tracking a lot of the stats that go into Vakoda. Historically, it's been very, very accurate. It's cold-hearted, yes, but it, it's an unbiased look at what players should be expected to do. That's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say it sounds very cold and very calculated, but that's actually exactly... Uh, what I'm looking for. And, and perhaps it's also my approach to fantasy hockey. And let me just illustrate for you a little conundrum I'm having with my co-host Elon. We're co-managing a team. I'm usually pretty slow to react to what I see. I don't like to react based on one goal or two or three games at a time. Case in point, I'm still waiting on Alex Semin right now to wake up and do something. And I've cringed at the thought of adding Tanner Pearson since his first goal of the season. And Elon is the total opposite. He'll painstakingly go through box scores line by line each night and deeply consider dropping or adding guys ASAP based on what he sees. What do you think of our approaches? Is is one of ours more like your own? And can you give me any validation to, to me telling him to calm down all the time and j- just to wait it out? Personally, I think if you draft smart, if you go into a draft prepared, you can afford to be patient. You know, yes, stay on top of injuries and playing time decisions. If your guy suddenly lost his power play role, like I believe, I think Chris Kreider was just, uh, you know, booted from the power play in the Rangers the other day, or at least that was the, the, the story. That's something you want to pay attention to because that will affect his scoring rates. Um, similarly, if another guy was, you know, given some power play time or, or that, that he wasn't expected to, that might be somebody you want to keep your radar on. Goalie decisions can, you know, make you want to be move quicker than necessary because in many pools, especially deeper ones, goalies are gone before you can blink. In, in general, I try to be patient. I, I don't make a lot of moves other than injury replacement type moves, at least until about a month and a half into the season, because there's so little that's stabilized yet. So many things have yet to really shake out. To be fair, Elon also is really big on keeping track of who's on the first power play unit. So I'm glad between he and I, we seem to have a lot of the bases. I, I trust you as, as a fantasy and statistical expert. It's nice for me to take off 
the expert hat every once in a while. When you're making decisions for your fantasy team, what's your thought process in terms of of advanced stats? Are there any that you go to right away? Do you focus on player usage charts or PDO? In in the pools I'm in, at least now, I'm in kind of some deeper pools so that the available guys are not going to be that interesting no matter what stats I look at. So, you know, I take, I just really look at who's there and I try to see, okay, who do I expect to get more offensive zone time? Who's getting power play time as, as uh, you mentioned, Elon likes to look at, and that's very important. You know, who do I think has some upside for a short period of time? Um, I, I really believe that the strongest team I could have is the team that I drafted. You know, for an injury replacement, I just say, you know, who can get me upside in a short period of time? If I need to make a long-term move, uh, again, I, I still look at upside. I tend to, to veer more towards younger players and older players, and sometimes that bites me. Generally, the player's usage on the team is more important, at least at this early stage in the year, than anything else. Once we get later in the year, if we're in, you know, uh, February, Jan- late January, February, then I might start looking at things more like their possession metrics, because possession metrics are very reliable. They're, they're very stable once they're established. And if you're a player who's establishing possession, you're more likely to score more as well, and vice versa if you're not. Okay, let's start getting into some players now. And from your most recent article over at Hockey Prospectus, that's hockeyprospectus.com, you can go check it out. You shared your thoughts after watching Saturday's Toronto-Boston game from the ACC Press Box. One thing in, in your article that caught my eye was that, well, you know, a lot of Rask owners are jittery right now, and Chara's injury only amplified that. You spent a lot of time talking about how the Bruins were going to cover for that. But let's be frank, is Rask really so dependent on Chara that his numbers might actually be in trouble from Chara being out for four to six weeks? I'm going to say no, not really. There's a site that it's, it's an oldie but a goodie in my mind called BehindTheNet.ca. And so you can track there what the on-ice save percentage is behind any given player. So looking right now at the Bruins defenseman, for example. Now, again, this is a very small sample. The Bruins have only played 10 games and Chara's only played nine of them. But Looking at all eight of the defensemen who have suited up for Boston this year, only one defenseman has seen his goalies have a worse on-ice save percentage at even strength than Zenochara. Obviously, that's not reliable. So if we go back to the previous year and look at the same stat, Chara was kind of high, but you know Adam McQuaid, Dougie Hamilton, even Kevin Miller had better save percentages behind them than Zenochara did. And Matt Barkowski was exactly the same. Only, I think, only Johnny Boychuk and Andre Mazaros had worse behind them than, uh, than Chara did. So I don't think Rask is going to be, is going to suffer over much from losing Chara. I think, and the game on Saturday at least reiterated that Dougie Hamilton is ready to really be established, really be looked at as a true number one defenseman. And is that going to translate into power play time and success too? Actually, you know, it's not a bad point, but I, I do think he will get increased power play time. He already was receiving a fair bit. Zenochara's role in the power play uh, tended actually in the last season or so to be standing in front of the goalie as opposed to on the point. Uh, but th- this year, I believe Dougie Hamilton has earned more power play time. And obviously, without Chara around for the next six weeks or so, he will be definitely on the first unit alongside uh, Tory Crew. Let's move on to the other side of that matchup. The Leafs are shaking up their lines after, well, I think it was embarrassing for all parties, their effort on Saturday night. And the Kessel line has been broken up. He's now going to play with Kadri and Lupul. Bozak and James Van Riemsdyk are going to move down with Clarkson. Who would you rather have on your fantasy team right now? Nazem Kadri, Joffrey Lupul, or James Van Riemsdyk? Nazem Kadri. I mean, generally speaking, 
even before the switch, I'd have Kadri over Lupul, and he'd be very close to Van Riemsdyk. Kadri's a very creative player. He can be very chippy, so he probably will get you know at least ab- above the average for penalty minutes for a first-line center, if you're in a pool that counts penalty minutes. He will provide a lot of offense. That said, I, I will remain skeptical that they're going to keep that line for very long. Um, I think we'll know a lot more about the future of the Leafs' top six when and if Randy Carlisle gets fired. The Canucks were one team that you covered for the Hockey Prospectus Guide, and, and you wrote a little thing about Daniel Sedin. And first, I just want to give his stat line quickly. So far, in eight games played, he's got two goals, nine assists for 11 points. His shooting percentage looks normal. His The number of shots on goal he's taking seems about right. So far this year, Sedin has played 107 minutes this year at even strength. 100 of those have been with Henrik Sedin and only seven minutes without. So is this the recipe for Daniel Sedin bouncing back? This is paces for 110 points. That's not happening. I mentioned earlier the stat PDO. Daniel Sedin right now is at 1038, which is huge. That's not going to maintain, uh, especially their, their on-ice shooting percentages. are. This is a 11, 11.5% with him on the ice. Um, Henrik is, I guess, 12.7. That won't be sustained. That said, we'll definitely see a rebound closer, a little bit closer to his historical norms just from the fact that he's no longer playing under John Tortorella and he's no longer replaying, you know, penalty killing minutes, um, which was a, a big, big mistake that Tortorella made last year. You want to see your players used a lot, but if a player's used too much, uh, their play will suffer for it. You know, there, there is kind of a, a line that says, you know, after the, over, over this amount, your play will suffer. Yeah, Bobby Ryan actually has been seeing a little bit of penalty kill time in Ottawa, and I think that's been concerning both for Ottawa fans and his fantasy owners. I'm personally happy for Daniel Sedin. He's been like a fantasy stud for so long, someone you can rely on. I didn't want to see him go to an undignified end. Uh, Let's move on to Dallas, another team that you covered for the guide. There's one player who we are getting tons of questions about, who is just not performing. He was one of their free agent acquisitions, and he had a great finish to last season. And now, well, only one point so far on the season. He's barely seeing 12 minutes of ice a night. I'm talking about Alice Hemsky. What's going on with him? I, I feel like the numbers still back him up. And I feel like maybe he deserves a little bit more luck. But is that really enough to explain just how bad his production has been, and is there still hope for Hemsky owners? There is hope. I think most of the issue with Hemsky yet, or so far, and again, it's very early, is that he's not been playing top six minutes. Right now, Hemsky has received the seventh most even strength ice time in Dallas, which tells me that he's just outside the top six. You know, I guess he's lost a spot, what he thought would have been a spot next to Spezza. So Hemsky's been playing mostly with guys like Vernon Fiddler and Patrick Eves. Uh, not exactly what you would want from a scoring option. Yes, he is playing a little bit on the power. He's playing second power play unit. You know, will he rebound? Yes, I think he will. I think he's a better player than, you know, one point over 10 games. Absolutely. Uh, I don't even need to say I think. I know he's a better player than that. The question is how quickly and will he be, will he get back up to the second line? Um, I think that depends on whether or not they move Spezza off the second, the first line. If Spezza is, is separated from Ben and Sagan, and right now, based on how successful they've been, I don't think Lindy Ruff is in any rush to do that. That, that also said, I want to say that uh, Dallas is one of the better, more balanced scoring teams. So um, I'll, I'll, I think recant what I said a little bit earlier and say when Valery Nichushkin returns from his injury, we'll see an uptake in Hemsky's output. 
Nachushkin is a guy who a lot of people were really excited about going into the season, but I noticed that Vakoda had him, I, I thought it was fairly conservative at 40 points in 72 games, especially considering some of the hype surrounding him. And even, you know, the, the write-up that Hockey Prospectus has beneath every player, that seemed to be glowing beyond a 40-point projection in 72 games. Considering I wrote the Nachushkin blurb, I guess it's, it's a fair question to ask. Um, I do think he's very, very talented. I think he's almost the prototype power forward. I can understand where Vakoda is coming from, especially because Vakoda does not care how much hype a player gets. Nachushkin was used in a, in a very, in a fairly sheltered role last year. Uh, first, he got first line minutes alongside Ben and Sagan. And yet, even though he was right up there with them in terms of, of you know, when he was playing, his numbers paled in comparison to those two, right? I mean, he's playing with them almost all the time, and yet he gets 34 points while uh, Sagan has 84, and Ben has, uh, what was his number last year? Similar to uh, 79. So, you know, Nutrition's very good, and he will be even better, but again, he's only 19 years old, and there are very few NHLers who, who make that leap. I will say that I think he will do better than he did last year. You know, assuming he comes back now, if he played a full healthy season, 50 points is about as much as I would bet on him. That said, I did draft him in, in my main hockey team this year. One last Dallas star that I'd like to talk about, and I feel like this is so unsustainable what he's doing. We're going to talk about Trevor Daly. He has a career high of 27 points, which at his current pace, he'll break before the halfway mark of the season. And we're not talking like career high of 27 points in two NHL seasons. He's been in that range several times over the course of, you know, a fairly long career so far. But the big difference is he's getting time on that first power play unit. Is that time alone enough to boost him significantly in terms of points output? Or is he still seeing a little more luck than than he should be seeing? He's absolutely seeing more luck than he should be seeing. Trevor Dale is a fine player, but as you pointed out, his career has been so historically stable in terms of his scoring that I, I, I can't see this uh, continuing in terms of his pace right now. He's fine to have in a relatively deep pool, but he's just not that good. I mean, he's not, he's not, sorry, I don't want to say he's not that good. <laughs> he's not good enough that, that, you know, that uh, you want to be buying high in him. You want to sell high. But he's never been on the first power play unit before, so maybe this is just the first chance he's gotten. Well, his points on the power play right now are quite inflated. 6.96 points per 60 on the power play is is very high. and I, I understand that he hasn't really played much more than about 25 or 26 minutes on the power play, but on a per-minute basis on the power play... It's one of the top guys right now among regulars in the NHL. You know, it, 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 it's very high. I don't think it's sustainable. If we look at his regular, his uh, even strength scoring, I don't think it's much more than it was typically. The fact that he is getting power play time may give him a slight boost on his career norms, which were between, you know, makes him roughly a 25, 28 point a year player. But he's just not the guy that, that we might think he is. And like I mentioned with Sabine earlier, his PDO, at least at even strength, is very, very high, unsustainably high. The Stars are scoring on nearly 15% of their shots at even strength on dailies on the ice. That will not continue. Yeah, I feel like it is inevitable that he's going to get replaced on that unit. I thought it was just fluky that he happened to be there the first couple games. Now that he's been there so long, it's got me thinking uh, Elon is, is pretty big on him, and I'm like 
on the fence. I, I feel a lot like you, though. He, he's had too much of a history of 25-point seasons to suddenly do something now, even if he, he's put in such a great position. Dallas was one of the teams going into this fantasy season that... I think people were really excited to draft a player from. They had so much buzz. They seemed to do everything right in the offseason. Let's flip to the other side. Elon and I were having this conversation on the last episode of the show. I want to get your take on it. Who is the worst team in the league to own a player from? Well, it seems like a fairly obvious answer, but Buffalo. Even even in contrast to Carolina? Yeah, because Carolina, they're down there. I mean, my, my bottom three, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, are, are Buffalo, Calgary, and Carolina. And I think those are the bottom three teams at the end of the year. But Carolina, as much as they're really bad, Justin Falk is a very good player. Jeff Skinner is a really, really talented player if he can stay healthy. And Eric Stahl, who I believe is returning any minute now, yes. is also a very, very good player. And he's definitely worth drafting. Anton Kadobin is a solid goaltender if he gets the minutes. But, uh, you know, I, I don't see on Buffalo, who do you want there? I mean, do you really want Cody Hodgson? No, not if plus minus is a category, which is a, a whole other subject. But Matt Molson is... plus is minus a... is not a category, do you really want him? No. Well... Maybe. I don't know. I feel like someone's got to score and he's going to get power play time. He's got at least, I don't know, Matt Molson. Are you sure somebody has to score? Because how many goals has Buffalo scored so far this year? Is it like eight? I'm going to have to look that up. Sorry, it's 10, 10 goals in nine games. Right. Okay. So nobody has to score. Nobody, nobody has, to, has score. to score. I feel like this That's... is like the first team in history where you can't say somebody has to score. Yeah, because nobody is going to score. You know, they'll get the odd fluke goal here and there. This is a team whose who's leader in points by the end of the year might not have more than 40. So drop Matt Molson, drop Cody Hodgson. You're right, there's nobody else to drop, I guess. There really isn't. I mean, in one of my pools, I ended up drafting uh, the, the Buffalo Felino because I needed a guy, and I've always liked Felino, but he's kind of roster filler. Right? He's not really, uh, you know, there isn't there, there truly isn't anybody that I would go out of my way to draft with Buffalo unless I knew a trade was coming to get the guy out of town, like Tyler Myers maybe. Let me throw another team out there, Florida or Calgary. Calgary is like eighth in the league right now. They're tied with the Sharks. I know that's unrealistic, so let's assume that they are going to drop back down as you yourself projected. I feel like Florida might might be below them. In my, my bottom three are Florida, Carolina, Buffalo. The difference with, um, with Florida, and I understand you know their goal scoring has not been that much better than Buffalo so far. But the difference with Florida is they, they actually do have some very talented players that I would draft. Similar to the way I look at Carolina, I see guys who on their own could do very well. Um, you know, with, with Calgary outside of Brody and, uh, and, um, uh, Giordano, and, and maybe if you're in a deep pool backland, I don't see anybody who's worth drafting. Uh, for Florida, I'm a big fan of, of, uh, Nick Bjugstad, even though he's had a slow start. Um, I think he's phenomenal. Um, guys like Alexander Barkov could, could take a big step. Ryan Campbell is a very good blue liner. Jonathan Huberdeau should rebound. Brandon Peary's a good uh, dark horse candidate. And guys like Brad Boys and Yossi Okinen are steady, if not you know full winners. They're at least guys who won't hurt you at the back end of your roster. Plus they have Luongo and Nett, who's pretty solid too. Yeah, Bjugstad is actually a guy we've been mentioning since late last season. He started slow this year, but it's it's worth pointing out he has 11 shots in his last two games. He's had five or more shots in a single game three times. They're going to start going in. He leads the Florida Panthers in shots taken by a fair margin, and, and he has the talent that, you know, it's seven games. A lot of players 
over the course of a year, we'll have a seven-game stretch or a ten-game stretch where they're kind of useless. But if it happens in the middle of the year, we don't notice it so much. When it happens at the beginning of the year, that's all we can see. Okay, let's let's do two more questions. I'm going to start in Montreal with Thomas Blakanitz. He's had a very strong start to the season. In fact, he's leading the team in points. Although I think Pacioretty is second with four points in eight games played. That's not fantastic, so maybe it's not too hard to lead the team in points, but he is. He's doing it. He's been given a defensive role mostly over the last three years. That seems to still be the case this year. Is it possible for him to produce from that defensive deployment? It's, it's funny you mention that. I mean, he has been given a defensive role the last few years because he is a very good two-way player. You know, that, that may be that second tier after the, the Bergerons of the world. But in fact, this year, his deployment has been less defensive than in years past. You know, things I've heard, it might partially be due to the signing of a guy like Manny Malhotra, who is more able to really bear, you know, the, the mule's load of the defensive zone shifts. Plakonic is still relatively defensive, but he's around middle of the pack for Montreal if you look at zone starts. Montreal seems to have their zone starts really strong clearly stratified like I, I was looking at the player usage chart and you've got like almost a straight line and you, you can identify the cluster of players on each line you know starting bottom left and then everyone disappears a little higher up on, on the line you know going upwards and to the right absolutely absolutely and right now Placanic is kind of in the middle right if, if you're looking at everybody um, and in the past, it, he was closer to that, you know, that bottom left. Lacanitz is, and he's a guy I've underrated in the past. I, I, I don't, I don't mind admitting that I was wrong on him in the years past. But last year, he had only 38% of his non-neutral zone starts in the offensive end, and this year that number is up all the way to a whopping 44.3, which still is a little low, but it's a big difference. He's getting more time in the offensive end. I think we will see, you know, and he, he's at an age where you expect to see some degradation in his stats. I think it's going to be slower for him simply because of the changed usage and the fact that a lot of the things that make him a very good hockey player are in his mind. And those are things that don't go slow too as early. You know, last year he had 43 points. I can see him back to where he was before the, the lockout with a you know, 50 to 55 point range. Let's move on to the last question uh, of the night. The San Jose Sharks... They made a lot of moves to try and change things over the offseason. Um, and I think people expected their their top guys, their, their old guard, to sort of take a step down and the new guard to take a step up. But if you look at their scoring so far this year, you've got Thornton and Marlowe, two of the top four scorers on the team. Thornton's fourth, and Marlowe leads the team in scoring. And meanwhile, you've got the guys who were supposed to step up, like Thomas Hurdle and Matthew Nieto, they haven't quite gotten there yet. So is is it too early to count out Marlowe and Thornton and also to count in the younger players who are supposed to step up? I know Couture and Pavelski have done their job, but I don't count them. I count them as sort of in the middle transitional guys. Um, it, it's a good question. Um, now, Vakoda was a little bit more bearish on Thornton and Marlowe than I would probably be. I think 65 to 70 points for each of them is still very much within reason. Thornton's hands and, and eyes vision are not going anywhere. Uh, there was some fear that he would lose playing time, but so far I don't think that's manifested itself very much. Of, of the two young guys you've mentioned, uh, Hurdle and uh, Nieto, even though I've drafted Nieto in one of my pools and I like him, he's not really, a, he's like a second slash third line player. I don't know that we're going to get much more than 45 points from him, and I think that's very reasonable. I think it's fair to expect an uptick from Thomas Hurdle, however. Well, he's just, he's got hands. He's got slick hands. 
you know, and as much, even though that uh, Nieto has taken double the shots that Hurdle has so far, um, I think Hurdle has more innate talent. I think I think we could see a step up from Hurdle. Then again, you know that that second year slump is it's he wouldn't be the first guy to fall to it. I, I just want to touch on something really quickly. You said second year slump and. I feel like that can't really be a thing, but I guess, you know, it happened to Huberto last year. Is it really a thing? Is is a sophomore slump something that we can, you know, count on happening more often than not? Or is it just kind of a way to explain, you know, a, a rookie who maybe got a little lucky or got better opportunities in his first season, falling off the map a little bit and maybe regressing to what would be expected for the rest of his career? The way that I've heard it explained to me, and, and calling it a sophomore slump does make it a cliche, you're absolutely right, but it's essentially when, when a new player comes into the league, there's very little in terms of advanced scouting that's known about the guy, you know, about his tendencies, about the way he shoots, where he likes to, to use the puck, how his vision is. You know, there will be some, but it won't be as much as you'd have from an NHL player. And so in the beginning, a talented player can come out and really, you know, almost set the world on fire with, with, with a lot of quick points because people don't know what to expect from him yet. But slowly, you know, NHL scouts are watching the guy and, and they, they kind of build a book on a player. They coach their own players in terms of how to react to what this new young, this new young hotshot is doing. They change their approach to like a Thomas Hurdle, for example, and they, they defend him differently. And so then it becomes up to Hurdle to make the next adjustment and to adjust to the way that the defensive have adjusted to him. Calling it a sophomore slump might be a bit trite, although it's happened more often as a sophomore because over the offseason, teams will have a lot more time to think and, and figure out what this guy was doing to make him so successful. Uh, but it can happen a lot earlier and it can take a lot, a lot longer. It's just really a matter of when will Hurdle adjust back to what they're now doing to him. Yeah, no, it, it makes sense when you when you think it out, for sure. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me on the show uh, for this special episode. I really appreciate it. It was really nice talking hockey with you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm, I, I'm, you can find me on Twitter at R.A. Wagman. Thanks. And your writing is found regularly at HockeyPerspectus.com, and you also make semi-regular appearances on the Hockey Prospectus podcast. Is that right? That's correct. And once in a while, I'll also contribute something to ESPN Insider. Fantastic. Thanks again, Ryan. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Okay, so there it was, this week's bonus episode of Keeping Carlson. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you learned something. We would love to get your feedback on Twitter at Keeping Carlson. We'll be back on late Sunday night or early, early Monday morning with our next regular episode Thanks for being with us. Thanks for tuning in. And I'll speak to you next time. Where's Elon? He usually does this part. Okay. Bring in the closing tune.